Hello, you're listening to the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. I work at the library helping to present discussions about culture, literature, and history to live audiences, and I'm here to share some of those conversations with you on the show. On today's episode, Ron Chernow. The historian is talking about his new book, Grant, a massive biography of our 18th president, Ulysses S. Grant. Chernow, who is a Pulitzer Prize winner, a National Book Award winner, and author of the book that inspired some musical about Alexander Hamilton, has served up in his latest biography an 1,100-page reassessment of the man who is routinely scored on the list of worst American presidents in all of history. Grant's bad reputation rests on a few things. His legendary drinking problem, the mixed assessments of his strategic capabilities in the Civil War, and his two terms as president having been marked by scandals within his administration and a couple of serious financial panics. His negative reputation is so firmly established that even Grant's bio on the White House's website really doesn't have that much good to say about him. On the other hand, Grant wrote famously amazing memoirs, The Personal Papers of Ulysses S. Grant, which was one of the best-selling books of the 19th century and is still considered by many the benchmark for presidential writing. And his presidency, not to mention his life before it, is, not surprisingly, much more nuanced than the image of the inept drunkard some people associate with him. Chernow spoke about why Grant's legacy has become the dark picture that it is, and what the truer story of his life might be with Richard Stengel, who is a former Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, and a former managing editor at Time, among many, many other things. And we'll get to that chat real fast. I want to remind you really quickly about our fall book fund. You know, the New York Public Library, it's kind of big. We get 17 million visitors a year, and all of our resources are in high demand. Books need to get replaced, and we're always adding new titles to our shelves. Each year, we advertise our fall book fund where you can help us with this. This year, our goal is to buy a hyper-specific number of books, 13,780. I don't know where that number came from, but I do like saying it. But here's the extra cool thing. An anonymous donor has agreed to match all donations made by midnight October 26, which is two days from now. So if you give, say, 20 bucks, it means that you bought not one, but two new books for the library. Think about it. It's a pretty good deal. To contribute, go to nypl.org slash donate pod. That's again, nypl.org slash donate pod. Let's get to the chat. Ron Chernow talking about Ulysses S. Grant with Richard Stengel. Good evening, everybody. Um, Ron is on the Mount Rushmore of American biographers. And there's never been a time in our history where we need more knowledge of American history than right now. So welcome. Thank you. (laughs) So first question, why Ulysses Grant? You spent a bunch of years with that ebullient, bon vivant, Alexander Hamilton, and now you're with this dour, reticent, American general. How was spending six years with him? Well, you know, I remember after I wrote uh, Alexander Hamilton, I never thought that I would have as dramatic a personal story again. Hamilton, as you all know, was this illegitimate, orphaned, penniless kid, comes from the Caribbean, knows no one in North America, sets the world on fire, becomes a founding father. It was the most dreamlike and implausible story imaginable. I think the personal saga of Ulysses S. Grant is even more dramatic than Alexander Hamilton, which is saying something. Uh, Grant was born small rural town in southwestern Ohio. Uh, He went to West Point. He served with distinction in the Mexican War. But then he was drummed out of the regular army because of a drinking problem. He then tried uh, farming in St. Louis. He had a wife and uh, four children. 
he failed at one business venture after uh, another to the point where in the 1850s in St. Louis, he was reduced to selling firewood on street corners in St. Louis. One Christmas, he actually had to pawn his watch to be able to buy gifts for his children. Finally, in, in uh, 1860, really desperate to support his wife and four children, and he's 38 years old at this time. He goes to his rather overbearing father, who owned a leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, and begged his father for a job as a clerk in the leather goods store, where he was going to work as a clerk junior to his two younger brothers. You can imagine just how humiliating that was. Okay, he serves as this junior clerk for a year in this leather goods store in Galena, Illinois. The Civil War breaks out. Two months later, he's a colonel. Four months later, he's a brigadier general. Ten months later, he's a major general. And four years later, he's general-in-chief, has a million men under him, the largest army in history. It is a story certainly as dramatic <laughs> and implausible as anything that Alexander Hamilton uh, did. And I was telling uh, you know Rick uh, uh, before, the original title of the book was uh, The Lives of Ulysses S. Grant. And I came up with that title um, because I felt he, left, he led nine lives, and everyone just knows the one life, the four years of the, uh, of the Civil War. Anyway, for various reasons, the title got shortened just to, uh, uh, to Grant. But um, the drama doesn't stop with the end of the Civil War. So let's continue with that narrative. His father was the one who got him to go to West Point. Yeah. There have been other generals like Eisenhower who yeah. didn't do much and then suddenly advanced. The cliche about Grant is that he wasn't that brilliant a general. He used that sort of Colin Powell doctrine of overwhelming yeah. force. But you also quote John Keegan as saying he's the greatest general in, in the Civil War and maybe one of the greatest in history. What, what made him special as a military man? Well, you know, it's very interesting, Rick, because the mythology of the Civil War that's common not only in the South, but, you know, in much of the North as well, was that Robert E. Lee was really sort of, you know, the, the brilliant general that the Civil War produced. And, and Grant was a crude butcher who just, you know, won by throwing an overwhelming number of men against the, uh, the enemy. And it's very interesting that that, you know, mythology has, has lingered because Grant captured three Confederate uh, armies during the war. He captured a Confederate army at Fort Donelson, captured a Confederate army at Vicksburg, and then most famously captured the Confederate army at Appomattox. Robert E. Lee never captured mm -hmm. uh, a Union army. And think of how difficult that is, that you actually have to encircle, you know, and entrap the army. Uh, Lee was a brilliant tactician. I try to do justice to that in the book. He was brilliant in individual battles. What Ulysses S. Grant uh, brought to uh, the Civil War was a very sophisticated strategic uh, vision. When he became general-in-chief, he realized that one of the things that had held back the Union uh, effort was that all of the various Union armies that were fighting in the various theaters of war were not cooperating with each other. So he came up with a comprehensive uh, vision so that all of these armies fighting over like a 1,500-mile area would be coordinated by one mastermind, which was uh, Grant. And, you know, there's so much focus on that last year of the war where he's fighting against Robert E. Lee in uh, Virginia that people don't realize that, uh, you know, Grant's accomplishment went far beyond just capturing Lee's army because it was Grant who was supervising Phil Sheridan, you know, as he conquered the Shenandoah mm -hmm. Valley. 
It was Grant who was supervising William Tecumseh Sherman during the famous March to the Sea, and then when Sherman and his 60,000 men are roaring up through the Carolinas. All of this is going on under the you know, supreme intelligence of one mind, Ulysses mm -hmm. S. Uh, Grant. So I think that I try in the book to come up with a very, very different you know, vision of this man as a general, and someone I think readers will be surprised at just how artful and sophisticated mm -hmm. he was. Just piggybacking on that, because we, we actually chatted about this too uh, the other day, Robert E. Lee is in the news these days. Yeah. General Grant will be, I hope, when, you, when your book comes <laughs> out. But what, you have thoughts about that and, and that, that sense of that kind of nostalgia for, for Lee and not thinking about Grant? Well, what happened, you know, after the, uh, the, the Civil War, there was a, 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 a school of uh, historians that were called the Lost Cause School. Mm. Uh, and instead of you know berating their generals and leaders for having led them into the folly of the uh, the Civil War, they went to the other extreme in terms of uh, fiercely trying to defend the South's reason uh, for uh, seceding. And essentially, what they did was that they rewrote the history mm -hmm. of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, they argued that the Civil War was caused by was a battle for states' rights, and we all know it was a battle about slavery. Um, they created a very, very uh, rosy picture of slavery, that all the slaves really had been very happy and contented, and the slaves were upset by all these abolitionists wanting to, uh, to free them. Uh, part of that was that uh, Robert E. Lee was far and away the superior general uh, to uh, Grant, and that Robert E. Lee was this perfect Christian gentleman and a great kind of noble um, aristocrat. Uh, and then in terms of Reconstruction, what happened after the Civil War, um, that instead of seeing Reconstruction as a very noble attempt to create a biracial society in the South, um, that it was, you know, vilified as this awful period of fiasco with corrupt, you know, carpetbag uh, uh, legislators and illiterate black legislators. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is that uh, Grant, when he was president, became the central figure uh, behind Reconstruction. And, you know, in the academy the last generation or two, there has been a complete revision yeah. in the view of um, Reconstruction as a noble you know, experiment to create a biracial society in the South. And most Americans, even Americans who know everything about the Civil War, uh, have no idea that we had a civil rights movement in this country in the late 1860s and early 1870s. I'll never forget when I was doing the research, Grant, after the war, is still the general and the chief. Congress has divided the South into five military districts, so all these five commanders are reporting to, to Grant. And I'll never forget, you know, reading this letter that Phil Sheridan um, who was the military commander in, in Texas and Louisiana. He writes Grant a letter in 1867, you know, dear general, um, today was an important day in the history of New Orleans. We desegregated the streetcars in New Orleans today. So up until today, blacks and whites rode on separate streetcars, and the blacks rode in streetcars that had a star on them and the shades of you-know-what, they had, had stars on them. And he said today, and then what happened was that the blacks started pouring onto the all-white streetcars in protest. Those companies then complained to Sheridan, but Sheridan insisted uh, that the um, blacks and whites be able to ride on the same uh, streetcars. Uh, and Sheridan writes to Grant, blacks and whites are happily riding side by side on streetcars in New Orleans. What are we talking, 80 years before Rosa Parks, that all this happened before? And it's been com there's complete amnesia. So uh, what? Let's it. stay yeah. with that because it, 
I yeah. mean, there's a lot of myths that you yeah. debunk in the book, including the myth about Reconstruction mm -hmm. not being a noble idea. How, you know, I think you also say that Grant was actually the natural inheritor to Abraham Lincoln in yeah. terms of that vision yeah, of Reconstruction. Yeah. But what went wrong, and what role did he have in that? Well, what happened, you know, while uh, Lincoln was still alive, as all of you saw the uh, Spielberg movie of Lincoln, you know, the 13th Amendment, uh, just a few months before Lincoln was uh, uh, assassinated, um, abolished slavery. But right on the eve of Grant's presidency, you have the 14th Amendment that con converts the 4 million you know, former slaves into full-fledged American citizens. And then most importantly, and Grant was a strong influence behind it, the 15th Amendment uh, gave uh, blacks in the South the right to... Uh, to vote. Well, the white South was more alarmed by that than uh, anything else, because you have to remember, the black population of the South, I think, was about 36%, but there were two states, South Carolina and Mississippi, where blacks actually comprised a majority uh, of the uh, population. This led to a very, very violent um, uh, backlash uh, by the Ku Klux Klan was formed. Mm -hmm. uh, the Klan uh, carried out a reign of terror uh, throughout the South. There was no Southern sheriff that would arrest a member of the Klan. There was no Southern jury that would convict a member uh, of the uh, of the Klan. And, um, you know, it's interesting, Rick, because people who know the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s, we know about the death of an Emmett Till in the mid-1950s. We know about the death of the uh, four black teenage girls in the Baptist church in Birmingham. When you get into the Reconstruction era, there were thousands thousands of blacks who were murdered, often dozens at a time, and these crimes went unpunished. Grant, as president, had to send in federal troops. And so what happened was, you know, in Southern memory, the memory is bayonet rule, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, Grant was sending in federal troops. Grant did not want to have to send in federal troops, but he felt that there had been a complete breakdown of uh, law and order in the South when it came to justice for blacks. And so what he did, it was during Grant's first year as president that the Justice Department was created. There had been a, an attorney general going back to George Washington, but not a Justice Department. And the first great crusade of the Justice Department was to crush the Ku Klux Klan, which they did. They brought 3,000 indictments against the Klan. So what we think of as the Klan is really the resurgence of it in the 19-teens mm -hmm. and the 1920s, but actually the original Klan, and they had the, the hoods and the robes and a lot of the same, you know, kind of um, methods and uh, philosophy. But that original uh, Klan was actually crushed by Grant, and I think that this is, you know, his presidency so often caricatured as a failed presidency. What I just said is no small achievement in mm. terms of what he did, you know, for racial justice. That, yes, it's incredibly in courageous. Yeah. So let's also stick with that cliche about him yeah. having a a corrupt administration, which is every sort of school boy and girl seems to know. I think even he had a cabinet member that used a private jet for some travel. I think. <laughs> um, how how corrupt was it? You know, there there were a lot of scandals. Um, uh, Grant had one um, uh, abiding flaw. It was an almost incurable naivete. He was a very, very trusting man. And those of you who read the book, you know, you'll see he was in business situations. He was cheated throughout his, his life. And in politics, there were a lot of people who deceived him. I think that there was, I mean, it seems strange to say, you know, about a great general, but there was, there, there was an innocence in him. And sometimes we can't see things in people that we don't have within ourselves. And there was like no 
guile. There was no dishonesty uh, in Grant's uh, nature. He was kind of a real stickler for truth. And so because he, he could not see all these machinations because he didn't really have that, you know, uh, within uh, himself. Grant himself was incorruptible, so the various uh, scandals in his administration did not uh, tarnish him personally. Um, so really what the scandal was was that uh, Grant had really um, overlooked or, or didn't perceive the threat of people in his immediate entourage, you know, who were doing these things. And then he was always, you know, surprised by it. And I think that what happened uh, during his second term in office, in the middle of his second term in office, uh, the, um, uh, the Democrats, who of course controlled the, the South, uh, the White South, um, Democrats uh, regained control of Congress for the first time since the Civil War. Uh, and as we all know, the party that's in power in Congress has the power to form investigative committees with subpoena power. And because all of these you know, Democratic congressmen were um, outraged by Reconstruction, that they thought that the way really to destroy Grant was to focus all these investigative committees on the various scandals that uh, had happened. And I think particularly since this was happening towards the end of his uh, second term, as you know, as a writer, yeah. endings have a powerful you know, effect on the story and on uh, later um, uh, memory. So that became the image of the Grant uh, ad administration. But there was a political agenda behind the emphasis on the scandals. So. Uh, let's talk about his image for a second. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's come down to us is that he liked to drink a bit. Uh, I was so yeah. pleased that you yeah. actually uh, proved the apocryphal story about during the Civil War when someone came to Lincoln and said, you know, General yeah. Grant is drinking. And Lincoln said, I want you to send a barrel of whatever whiskey he drinks to all my generals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did he... Did he continue to drink during when he was president? I mean, how 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 did yeah. it influence him? Well, this is interesting. You know, when I started the book, my friend uh, Harold Holzer, who's a great Lincoln uh, scholar, Harold said to me, uh, "It would be nice to settle this drinking issue once and for all." Because what's happened in in, in recent uh, years is that the books about Grant have gotten consistently more admiring. You know, and his um, standing among you know presidents has really been uh, rising, and so the People have written admiring books about Grant. The tendency has been to say the drinking stories were invented by his rivals. These were bitter, malicious rivals. And during the Civil War, there were an enormous number of um, malicious and often anonymous, but sometimes signed letters written to Lincoln or the War Secretary, Edwin Stanton, or the Treasury Secretary, uh, Salmon P. Chase. And uh, so, again, kind of the admiring books have been saying, about uh, Grant. These were all invented stories by people, you know, who had an agenda. And I, frankly, when I started the book, I thought that was where I was going to end up. But I started looking at these letters. There were dozens of them. And what I noticed was that um, there was a remarkable consistency in these letters written by different people, different places, different times. Remarkable consistency in the portrait of the person they were describing. Uh, they would call him foolishly drunk, idiotically drunk, silly drunk. They would kind of describe a sort of jovial drunk who slurred his words and stumbled. And it was always the same character, but these people could not have coordinated. And so I started thinking, you know what, that these letters may well have been malicious in intent, um, but 
I think this was really happening, you know, that this was based on fact. Anyway, I, you know, maybe more than most readers, you know, uh, will uh, want, I really have reconstructed uh, this whole story of Grant and, 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 and drinking. And what I felt also was wrong with the whole discussion historically about Grant and drinking was that the way the question was posed was, was Grant a drunkard or not? Mm -hmm. And that's such a loaded and moralistic term. And I said to myself, you know, how can we in the early 21st century be talking about was Grant a drunkard or not? We call these people alcoholics. Grant was mm -hmm. an alcoholic. And I discovered that rather than being a sort of quote-unquote drunkard who was just freely indulging this, from the time that he was in his 20s, he joined Temperance Lodge. This was something that he struggled with his uh, entire life. And one of the remarkable stories that I tell in the book was about his relationship with a man on his wartime staff named John Rollins, who was his chief of staff. And um, Rollins was a young lawyer from Galena. Um, and Rollins had a father who was an alcoholic. Rollins himself was afraid he was an alcoholic. And so when uh, Grant uh, offered him the job as his adjutant, that Rollins said that he would take the job on one condition, that Grant promised never to touch a drop of liquor during the war, where he, Rollins, would quit the staff and call him on it. Well, you'll see when you read the book, this became a very, very complicated story, because Grant did lapse many times. Rollins did call him out privately, but Rollins also came to think, and Rollins was fiercely patriotic, that Ulysses S. Grant um, was the general who was going to win the war and save the Union. So he's kind of privately chastising him while publicly reassuring Lincoln and everyone else, there's no problem here. You know, Grant has not touched a drop of liquor since the start of the war. It's kind of amazing what went on between these two men. And he was sort of a private drinker, right? He was a driver. Yeah, he was. And then the other thing that had complicated this uh, uh, story was that there were many people who claimed to have seen uh, Grant drinking. But then there were many people... Really, some of the people who worked most closely with him was I worked with Grant, you know, during this period. I was with him every day, you know, for weeks or months. I never saw him touch a drop of liquor. So I started doing the book, and I said, well, how does one, how can one reconcile this? Because these were people both, you know, in good faith on both sides, saying these seemingly irreconcilable things. Well, what I discovered was that uh, he was a binge drinker, an episodic drinker. He would go for two, three months without touching a drop of liquor. Um, he had enough control over the problem that he was able to almost kind of schedule, if I could use that word, uh, these sprees, as they were called in those days. He would wait until it was always after a battle, a moment when he was not in danger, nor were his troops. He would take a side trip to another town where he couldn't be seen by his men or his officers. Um, and he would then have a two or three day uh, uh, bench. Uh, so it became, you know, perfectly understandable why there were people who had worked very closely with him and said, I never saw him touch a drop of uh, liquor because uh, he was, uh, you know, it was funny because I, you know, I, as part of my research, um, uh, I spoke with many, many friends um, who um, had, you know, alcohol problems. Uh, and, uh, you know, they all said the same thing. They would say, number one, Grant is what we call an AA, a high-functioning alcoholic. You know, there's certain people who are alcoholics, and they're sort of amazing what they can do. Uh, and then they all said the same thing, and I tell them the story of John Rollins. They said, oh, he had his sponsor on his staff. But again, that kind of speaks very well of Grant, that he had this, he hired this sort of watchdog 
for himself. That must have been many times a very uncomfortable situation. You have this person who's sort of, you know, on the, <laughs> the lookout all the time, you know, uh, for that you're going to start uh, drinking. So it turned out to be an absolutely fascinating topic to go into. And then also the other person who was indispensable uh, was uh, his wife, Julia. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were never stories ever uh, about Grant drinking when Julia was around. And then what happened during his two-term presidency, when, of course, Julia was there every day, there are almost no stories of Grant uh, uh, drinking uh, during his uh, presidency. And I think that he really um, conquered the, the, the problem. And he talked about the problem with Mark Twain, who was his publisher for the memoirs. And Twain wrote this fascinating letter about having discussed the drinking with Grant. And he said, this is really a total conquest that Grant not only conquered the habit, but um, even lost the taste for mm. alcohol, which mm. Grant, uh, which Twain felt was kind of true proof of a real um, conquest. So I want to get to the memoirs in a second, and we're going to leave some time for questions. But while we're talking about his character, there's always another, mm. again, uh, assumption that people have about Grant because of that famous letter that he wrote during World War II was that he was anti-Semitic. Um, yeah, you yeah that this is some kind of, you know, it was, it was a stereotype that I was particularly uh, happy to uh, retire. Okay, the story was this. Um, in December 1862, Grant's armies penetrated down into the cotton kingdom of uh, Mississippi. There was enormous um, uh, illegal smuggling trade going on of cotton from the south to the, uh, uh, to, to the north which Grant was trying to uh, uh, stop. Uh, his own father appeared with three Jewish merchants from Cincinnati uh, trying to get permits, you know, to um, import cotton to the, the north. And Grant, I say in the book, partly kind of in a fit of edible rage, passed what was the single most um, anti-Semitic action in American history. He issued an order, it was called General Orders Number 11, and because, you know, Grant and all the generals were very upset about, you know, these uh, traders smuggling cotton. And given the anti-Semitism of the day, the shorthand in the letters was the Jews, the Jewish traders. There were some Jewish traders, but there were many more non-Jewish traders. So he issues this general order, uh, number 11, which uh, states that all of the Jews in his department, his department at that time was northern Mississippi, western Tennessee, Kentucky, that all the Jewish that all the Jews, period, should be expelled from the district. Well, Grant later said he regretted it almost, you know, for the moment it left his hands. Lincoln and Stanton get it in Washington instantly overrule it. They were quite horrified. Okay, so that's the story that, you know, a lot of people, particularly in the Jewish community, know. And I have had many people, it seems like every time I'm at the New York Historical Society, I see someone making a beeline towards me, you know, glaring at me, and then comes up to say, is Grant an anti semite That's what we were trying know? to avoid yeah, tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So don't come up through that. But they don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's like they know the, 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 the first uh, chapter of a very long saga, because Grant spent the rest of his life atoning for this. Let me just kind of rattle off some of the things that he did to uh, atone for this. Uh, Grant appointed uh, more Jews to public office as president than all of the other presidents in the 19th century combined. His main um, advisor, mainly as on to the Jewish community, a lawyer named Simon Wolf. Simon Wolf said that he alone recommended 50 Jewish people who were uh, uh, appointed. Uh, Grant um, also uh, appointed uh, the first 
um, Jewish, uh, what we would now call ambassador, because he prote Grant protested a pogrom against Jews in uh, Romania, uh, and then appointed a Jew as consul general to Romania, who, and he sent him there really to try to work on uh, saving the Jewish community there. He spoke out against um, 2,000 Jews were exiled in uh, Tsarist uh, Russia. Grant spoke out against this. And this is a time, Rick, in the 19th century. You did not protest human rights violations abroad. I can't tell you how unprecedented this was. That was considered you don't interfere in the internal affairs of other uh, countries. So this was a first, not only in terms of Jews, but any group protesting uh, human rights violations. And then actually the incident that I find most uh, touching is that uh, while Grant was president, there was a tiny little synagogue in Washington, D.C., Odysseus Royal. It was an Orthodox uh, synagogue. Uh, Grant attended the dedication of the synagogue. Hmm. And he went there, and he went there with his son, and he went there with a, a senator. And it was Orthodox, so it was all in Hebrew, which meant he didn't understand a word. And he's sitting there in his hat. And they went up to him after an hour, the head of the congregation, and said, you know, Mr. President, we're very, very touched. And this is a, a synagogue that was so small, I would say it was about one-third the size of this room, if you could picture that, because it was long and narrow. So if you could kind of picture, you know, this auditorium cut into three sections, that would be about the size of the synagogue. So they went up to him after an hour and said, Mr. President, it was very nice of you to come. You can feel free to leave now. We know how busy your time is. He insisted on sitting for the full three hours, you know, gave a personal donation out of his, you know, opened his wallet and gave a donation uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the end. And even on his deathbed was expressing regret about General Orders Number 11. And I think that, you know, the word really got out in the uh, Jewish community when Grant ran for president in uh, 1868 and 1872. Both times he got the overwhelming majority hmm. of Jewish voters voted for him. So I think it's important because, you know, there's been, um, there have been people saying tear down Grant's tomb, tear down there's a Grant statue in, 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 in Crown Heights, it's become part of the whole monuments uh, controversy. And so I think, <laughs> needless to say, it would be a big mistake to tear them down. So, audience now, or one more question? Okay, I'm going to ask one more question, then we're going to the audience. But So, the, one of the most dramatic and moving parts of the book is the period when he wrote his memoirs, which yeah. are famously wonderful yeah. memoirs. Um, yeah. I, I'd love you to tell that story, and we'll open it to questions. And, and also, my question for you is, what is it like to write the biography of a man who wrote a famous autobiography? Well, it's funny you should ask that question, Rick, because I remember when I started the book, I ran into a friend on the street one day who asked that very question. And uh, I had, have to say, <laughs> kind of sent me reeling for a few days. Uh, but then I realized, well, number one, it's, it's kind of military memoirs. For instance, he omits any mention of his two-term presidency. So it's kind of not a full-fledged autobiography. It's principally a memoir. Some, some stuff about his childhood, but mostly a memoir of the Mexican War and the, uh, and, and the Civil War. But then I realized what my job was as a biographer is to talk about what Grant did not want to talk about. So there's no mention of, for instance, the drinking problem. Um, there was, I was mentioning that period in St. Louis where he was selling firewood on street corners because he was desperate. That two or three year period where he really hit bottom. 
um, he skips over in one or two sentences in the, uh, the the book. So actually, in a way, you know that you know that that question, and then sort of looking for the silences, that helped to in a way sharpen my vision as the biographer because uh, the silences they were very pregnant silences, if I could put it uh, that way. Uh, and there's always a reason in any memoir or autobiography why people skip certain subjects, and so. Um, by kind of looking at the memoirs from that point of view in terms of what he didn't want to uh, talk about, it tells me something about what uh, the things that troubled Grant the most. Questions? Yes, the young lady in the second row. Building on this last exchange, what would you say is the difference between memoir, autobiography, and biography? Well, I, you know, I think that I just, uh, I, I guess, started to, to answer that question. You know, uh, a memoir tends to, it tends to be uh, much more uh, selective. Uh, very often people will write a, a memoir, you know, not out of research, but simply out of their own uh, memory. And so I think that we accept with a memoir that a memoir is the past as remembered by this person. And very often people who write a memoir are kind of not uh, uh, comparing it. Uh, with the historical record to see the tension uh, between the uh, uh, the two. Um, you know, I think the beautiful thing about um, uh, biography, obviously, you know, memoir autobiography, uh, by definition, has to be written while the person um, uh, is alive. Uh, I think the great advantage of history and biography is that uh, the perspective of time. Uh, I think, you know, here we are 150 years after the uh, Civil War, and particularly in terms of a lot of things we were talking about, the image of Grant, the image of um, uh, Lee, the whole controversy about the, you know, the Confederate uh, monuments, and um, you know, most startlingly, the um, revised image of Reconstruction. Uh, we see the, thing, the past very, very differently, and we evaluate the past very, very differently, uh, both because new information becomes more um, available uh, but our, our, our values change. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, what Grant did for those four million, you know, free slaves, I think um, maybe seems more important to us now than it has at earlier periods in, the his in history when um, racism was even more pervasive than it is now. Steve. Um, I, have, I was reading The New Yorker this weekend, and I happened upon Adam Gopnik's piece. That, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you liked it or didn't like it, but it, it seemed to present a, more, a starker uh, distinction between your portrayal of Grant and what we were all taught in high school and college, you know, great general, terrible president. And you mentioned, and you made the point that we've all been to the Lincoln Memorial, but probably none of us have been, except for you, have been to Grant's tomb. Mm -hmm. And... You made the point that that had to do with the Democrats taking over Congress toward the end of his time as president. But it seems, to, and you also made the point that more recently biographers have been more favorable toward him, but there was probably 100 or 150 years in between those yeah. two things. Yeah. So is that really the only reason that Grant ended up sort of in the dustbin of history for a while? Was well, the Democrats I, you know, I think Congress, it's, 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 it's a very good question, Steve. I, I think that maybe... Uh, um, more importantly, in terms of Grant's historical uh, reputation, was um, I mentioned the Lost Cause School, um, that the uh, history of the Civil War and Reconstruction for a very long time was dominated by Southern 
historians, you know, who perpetuated that kind of lost cause legacy that the Confederacy um, had very legitimate, uh, you know, reasons for seceding. Lee was the superior general. Reconstruction was a fiasco. And I think that what has uh, uh, happened, because, um, you know, all of the books um, uh, about Grant have become progressively uh, more admiring, uh, you know, in the stock market of historical reputations, there's currently a bull market going on, you know, in grant uh, in grant shares. And I think what's happened in, um, you know, the academic world, uh, led particularly by Eric Foner, great historian at Columbia of the Civil War and Reconstruction, is that in academia, there's been a complete revisionist view um, of Reconstruction from fiasco to, you know, noble, if flawed, uh, experiment, um, and it's kind of slowly sort of filtering, you know, down to the masses, to the readership uh, out there. But I would say that it was the, um, you know, that kind of lost cause uh, view of the Civil War and Reconstruction. It was so influential not only in uh, the South, but in, in the North. Uh, it's reflected I don't know if many of you have seen the original Birth of the Nation, not the recent one, the original Birth of the Nation, 1915. It was Woodrow Wilson's favorite, you know, movie. It was, it was shown in the uh, White House, and it's the glorification of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, cracking down on all of these carpetbag politicians and black legislators who were violating, you know, Southern womanhood. It was uh, reflected and incorporated into Gone with the Wind. I mean, how interesting that, you know, the South lost the Civil War. Why is it that in the most famous Hollywood movie ever made about the Civil War, it completely reflects the uh, Southern point of view and the lost cause, you know, school of uh, historians. So, you know, that school of historians was very influential in the North uh, as well as the South. But I think that there's a real change going on. And I'm, you know, I'm... I'm you know, sorry about the, uh, you know, the violent clash over the Confederate monuments, but um, I think that um, I'm hoping that we can turn this into a teachable uh, moment in terms of educating more people more about what happened during the Civil War and Reconstruction, because one of the problems, you know, that we still have, you know, in, in, in anticipation of the book coming out, I uh, took my own informal a little survey of friends who grew up in the South, about six or seven friends who grew up in the South. And I'd say, would you mind sending me an email um, about how the Civil War was presented and how Reconstruction uh, was presented? And there was, there was variation. Some heard a lot about slavery. Some heard nothing at all about slavery. Um, but there was 100% consistency in terms of the cause of the Civil War with states' rights. Uh, not uh, uh, slavery. And so I think that we're still fighting over these symbols because we still have two competing narratives in terms of the causes of the Civil War and how the Civil War was fought and the uh, consequences of it. You know, this is kind of interesting for, for me doing uh, Grant because having done Hamilton in Washington, it was, you know, it, it was so much fun going around the country talking about it because Americans take great pride in the founding era. It's inspirational, it's unifying. Maybe they prefer Hamilton, maybe they prefer Jefferson, but everyone's very proud of uh, what was accomplished. Uh, the Civil War was divisive, it was polarizing, and it is still a, a, an open wound. And I think that it's because, uh, you know, there are two 
And it all boils down to the stories we tell ourselves about our own past, and they're two very different stories about what happened. And as long as that is the case, we will continue to fight about these uh, Confederate monuments. Last question. Gentleman right here. Civil War was very divisive. So was the revolutionary period and the period after the revolution. And yet, the period after the revolution seems to reflect an America that everyone admires and hopes moves forward. Yeah. The Civil War, divisive, genuinely divisive, yeah. denial of slavery is the impetus for the Civil War and mm -hmm. the abolition of slavery. Mm -hmm. How does how do we reconcile that when we've made the villains, because collectively we've accepted Lee as a hero, mm -hmm. and we haven't ever metaphorically hung Jefferson Davis. Yeah. How do we rec is there a, an opportunity, is there a prospect in your view of reconciling that and getting the story straight so that we can get back on the path of the brilliance of however you might take size between um, Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison and Washington. Well, yeah, um, I think that with the, uh, the the founding era, there were very, very deep splits. They were not qu quite as irreconcilable as slavery, because slavery finally became this irreconcilable, you know, split in the 1850s and uh, 1860s. I think that the, uh, you know, the unity, it's a very good question, um, because and I think the, sh the show actually shows brilliantly just how malicious and partisan things became in American politics in the 1790s. Um, but I think that the slavery issue was there, but it was in many ways sort of buried and uh, postponed. Rick and I were talking about this before, that our founders, who were brilliant about so many uh, things, they all took refuge, because they, they were very, very um, realistic people. Uh, the, the founders, and they were steeped in history, but they all took refuge in a very um, pleasing but delusional fantasy that slavery would wither away, would gradually fade um, away, uh, that there'd be this kind of nice, neat, peaceful uh, solution. And they were doing what we would today call kicking the can down the road um, uh, uh, big time. You know, James Madison said the real conflict at the Constitutional Convention was not between the big states and the small states, which is the way it was taught in school, but between the, the North and the South, and that was over slavery. So it was there. But somehow there was like a gentleman's agreement to ignore that, you know, and to uh, move on. But then by the time of the Civil War, it couldn't... Uh, you know, it, it couldn't be ignored uh, anymore. Then what happened, um, you know, after the uh, the war, um, I talk about this a lot in the, in, in the book, um, year after the Civil War, a uh, federal judge in uh, Virginia uh, convened a grand jury that wanted to prosecute Robert E. Lee for treason, along with Joseph Johnston and James Longstreet. In other words, all of the leading confederal, Confederate generals wanted to con um, and um, Grant uh, went to President Andrew Johnson, 
who had been Lincoln's vice president, now is the president. And um, uh, Johnson, Andrew Johnson at that point was on the warpath uh, against the uh, former Confederates. And uh, it was Grant who went to the White House and said to the uh, president, he said, you cannot possibly prosecute Robert E. Lee and the other Confederate generals because at Appomattox, I promised them that they would not be prosecuted uh, for treason. And as the military commander who made that agreement, I cannot renege on it. I pledged my sacred honor to, to Lee that he would not be prosecuted. And had I not done so, the war would not have ended at that uh, time. You know, so I think Grant made the right decision at Appomattox. I think that he made the right, you know, decision. And then, in fact, he, he threatened to quit as general in chief if uh, Johnson continued to pursue uh, this treason prosecution against the Confederate uh, generals. I, and I think that Grant made the, the right decision. Unfortunately, you know, the unintended byproduct of that uh, was that it kind of let them all off the, um, uh, the, the hook. Uh, there was nothing equivalent to the truth, you know, in recon mm -hmm. what was it called, the truth and uh, reconciliation, reconciliation uh, process, you know, nothing like, if it's not too extreme an analogy, nothing like the denazification, you know, things that you know, happened in, in Germany after the, uh, the war. And it's kind of one reason, I think, that all these issues are still floating out there. Ron Chernow, an American treasure. All right, that's the show. Grant is available now. Some guy named Bill Clinton just gave it a pretty good review in the New York Times, so it's probably worth a look. And you know, Grant's memoirs are in the public domain, like all books published in the States before 1923. So that means that anyone can read it on our app, Simply E. And if you have a New York Public Library card, you can read thousands of other great new books alongside that. So check it out. As always, thanks again for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. 